Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you are listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to be talking about the prospect of a Mideast NATO. Oh. Oh. <laughs> a Mideast NATO. We'll talk a little bit about the war in Ukraine and some of the things coming out around that. And then we'll talk about the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, officially this time, instead of a draft decision. All that and more coming up. get into the rapid fire news. So, Ukraine and Moldova are now officially candidates for EU membership status, which is probably more important for Moldova than it is for Ukraine, as there's doubts as to whether Ukraine's going to live long enough to see them actually complete the process, especially given how long it usually takes. <laughs> Expediting the process doesn't exactly mean much when it takes decades in the case of some countries like Turkey, who still isn't even in. So, not entirely sure if the Ukraine will actually make it into the EU before they uh, kick the bucket and sleep with the fishes. But we'll see, although Moldova will probably live, unless the war comes to their doorstep and they get drawn in on the wrong side, and the wrong side being against Russia, because they're, they're going to lose. They're going to lose. I don't mean wrong and right as in morally. I mean what's best for Moldova would not be to side with NATO. In fact, it would be to stay out of the war if they could. And if they ended up at war, they'd probably be safer under Russia. But if they can stay out, they'll gain access to the EU. But then again, they'll also be put under all the same restrictions and the same sanctions regime that the EU has placed in Russia. So maybe that wouldn't be as beneficial to Moldova specifically as it as the membership could be cuz on a concept level the EU should be an incredible thing like free trade between the nations of Europe and hard protectionist border on the outside so it's hard to get into the EU market but once you're in the EU market it's your free game, but the EU has so many restrictions, and the restrictions are so heavy, and they, they're always imposing new restrictions and never lifting old ones, that it, it's just, it weighs everyone down collectively. I mean, look at Britain. They're doing about as well as, well, actually, I, I was almost about to say about as well as anyone would expect, but most people expected the British economy to implode on itself. But Britain's doing just fine. In fact, they, back during the 2020-2021 period, the British were able to get vaccines easier than the EU, and some of the vaccines were produced in the EU. So, in instances like that, it kind of casts doubt onto whether or not being in the EU is even worth it. Now, I, I don't exactly have a high opinion of the EU, as an institution, but when you look at what it, it, it could have been, and in some cases should have been, versus what it is, 
it's not exactly a, a very appealing thing. So it's not a purely good thing that Moldova and Ukraine are membership. I mean, are now candidates for membership because the restrictions, like I said, could just end up crippling their economy and holding them back in perpetuity whilst benefiting countries who are already strong in the EU, like Germany, France, and maybe Italy. I say maybe Italy because, you know, Germany is the big dog. So undoubtedly it's going to benefit German industry unless Germany has to subsidize development in Moldova, which they don't want to do. They, they already have enough issues with Greece and Cyprus. So we'll see what comes with that. I'm pretty sure Moldova will live to see the end of this. If, if anyone, if of the two, I'm more willing to bet that Moldova sees the end of the Ukrainian war, the Russo-Ukrainian war, uh, not so much Ukraine, but both of them are in danger, so don't exactly know what this move is going to do for them, but it's happening, so we'll definitely see what comes of it, yeah, maybe if there is a, a proper... Uh, a favorable settlement for Ukraine, I should say that. If there is a favorable settlement to the war for Ukraine, where Ukraine gets to continue its existence as a country in a meaningful way, not just like a, a rump state, landlocked country in Europe, they could bring a whole lot to the table for the Europeans if the Europeans are willing to utilize it. I mean, Ukraine has lots of natural gas, they have lots of coal, they have lots of wheat, and they have lots of agricultural land. They even have rare earth in the western parts of it, and towards the, like the Carpathian Mountains and whatnot. And they have a great river system to where transporting goods from the heart of Ukraine to the world market via the, the Dnieper River. It just goes straight through the middle of the country. You can sail things down the river, get out to the Black Sea, and then get out to the Mediterranean going through Turkey. It's pretty economical if you have proper economics to go with it. And the, like I said, the EU does not demonstrate that it has the proper economics. I don't know if Ukraine would be better off even if they survived the war and managed to live to see the light of day where they become a part of the EU. And that's assuming that they even get to the part where they become members in the EU at all. Because, again, there are countries who are still waiting on that membership and are probably very, very salty that Ukraine and Moldova got put before them without even trying. So, But, uh, yeah, Ukraine could bring a whole lot to the table. But, again, there's lots of resistance, not, not just as an institution with regards to the EU. There's also lots of environmentalist movements who don't like natural gas which displaces dirtier fuels but they don't like natural gas uh although although we'll, we'll see how much influence they have by come the winter well, since europe is running out of natural gas incredibly quickly we'll see just how strong that environmentalist sentiment is and if it proves strong enough to keep them from opening up the taps to russian gas We'll see how fast the movement dies when people start to freeze in the winter. And I have a very strong feeling that lectures about carbon emissions aren't going to make anybody feel very good when they're freezing in the cold and could have access to Russian natural gas, but the environmentalists say no. 
So there's a, a roadblock to development of natural gas and coal and re really mining also because the environmentalists don't like to destroy the environment. It, so depending on the strength of the environmental lobby in the EU, even assuming that Ukraine lives through the war, has a decent chunk of their country left to bring some of those raw materials and natural resources to the table of the EU, even once they get past those, can they get past the environmentalist lobby? Will the environmentalists allow economic development in Ukraine? Will the EU bring its own weight to the table to help Ukraine develop? Because that's the other thing. Ukraine is going to be war-torn by the end of this. They're going to... They, they have the potential, but they're going to start from an even lower point than they were at before the war. So... Will being in the EU help bring out Ukraine's full potential? Because if it can, then they're gonna, it's gonna be a positive feedback loop, and the the EU will genuinely get something really positive out of Ukraine's membership. Uh, and particularly when it comes to the next generation of industries, you know, with regards to uh, semiconductors and microchips, Ukraine has lots of rarity. Russia has lots of rare earth, but you can use Ukraine, who is inside the EU market, and thus you don't have to go through trade barriers to get access to the rare earth from Ukraine. Ukraine has lots of basics, like, again, food. Europe is a very urban continent, so the food from Ukraine is going to be great if they can have it inside the EU market. Ukraine has natural gas, something that the the rest of Europe lacks and that they get from Russia if Ukraine is able to reach its full potential and is able to tap these resources, Europe doesn't need to depend on Russia and they can have a proper independence from Russian natural gas and they can pursue all the anti-Russian policies they want without too much uh, self-inflicted harm because they have natural gas in Ukraine. Ukraine can be very beneficial to the EU if it can reach its full potential within the EU. But EU policies heavily suggest, and not, not to mention EU history, with regards to smaller, less developed countries, it's unlikely that Ukraine will reach that full potential. And if it doesn't reach that full potential, then it's going to end up being a net drain on the EU instead a constant source of uh, a black hole of constant EU funds. And that's just going to make the Germans hate the Ukrainians, especially with those uh, unsavory parts of Germany's past lingering around in Ukraine in the form of Nazis. But I'll digress. It's, it's a little bit of something for you about Ukraine and Moldova and the EU. Moldova would just, they'd, they'd just be there. They'd be, they'd be like, the they'd be that'd be even less significant than Greece, uh, but they'd be there, you know. That's something. I don't exactly know what the EU would gain from Moldova, and uh, things probably won't change too much for Moldova either from being a part of this. So I guess that's why they were even willing to join up with this. Uh, that in the fear of war, but the EU doesn't defend countries from war, so. Uh, I mean, we'll see. We'll definitely see what comes from this, and assuming that these two countries live to see the light of day. 
In other news, South Sudan has begun construction of a 553-mile-long road to connect their capital city, uh, Juba, which is in the far south of the country, with one of their major cities to the northwest called Wau. That's W-A-U, not W-O-W. So yeah, they're doing that in South Sudan. You have the Mali, uh, the Mali army, there we go, conducting airstrikes against Islamist militants in the heart of the country, specifically the Masina Katiba jihadists. So, more death and destruction in the Second Great African War. You have a U.S. delegation, which has been sent to Sri Lanka to talk about the economic crisis there. Don't know what exactly we're going to be doing for them, because we're kind of on the verge of our own economic crisis over here. And the last thing I need is to have my money going to other countries when we're about to kick the bucket. (laughs) Uh, uh, But hey, we have to contain China. Uh, Uh, A major French energy company, uh, well, major French energy companies, plural, have straight up told their clients to cut energy consumption and prepare for an energy crisis in response to the effects of the lack of Russian natural gas now really starting to be felt in Western Europe and even France, where a very large percent of their energy comes from nuclear power. But I guess not enough if they're talking about energy shortages from the lack of natural gas. So, and that's another thing, that's another thing. If they're talking about these shortages, if they're talking about a shortage of energy, an energy crisis, I should say, that's that's the way they put it. Right now, when we're not even in July yet, like we're quite literally halfway through the year, If we're talking about energy crises now, due to a lack of natural gas in a country that gets the majority of its electricity from nuclear power, what does that imply about the winter? Because we still have what? We have July, August, September, October before things really start to get cold again. the, the the weather for the past couple of years has been pretty iffy. I mean, December this December we went almost the entire month without really any snow. It didn't start snowing until like January and February, but it got cold. It got really cold though uh, in January and late December. The past few years have been pretty iffy you know, with regards to the cold in December and November. It could hit later, like it did. Uh, this year where it didn't really start to get cold and really snowing until like January and February and it stuck around until late April well not late April like early to mid April so we could have that which would be great for the Europeans or it could hit early like it does every once in a while now where it is cold and snowing in November it is extra cold in October to the point where Halloween becomes unbearable. We could have that. And if that's what we get, the Europeans are even more screwed. Like, if we have a winter like we just went through, the Europeans have a little bit more time. 
But if they're talking about, in France, a country that gets the majority of its power from nuclear energy, if they're talking about energy shortages, an energy crisis, due to the lack of natural gas from Russia, what does that say about the rest of Europe when we have three to four months before the temperatures start to drop? And people need the natural gas to heat their homes and heat their businesses and heat their factories. Germany still has its industry. So what about the factories? What happens then? If France is already talking about an energy crisis now, what's the rest of Europe looking like? How much time do they have? Because it, it seems to me like they don't have much time at all. If we're already talking about potential an energy crisis now and I keep harping on the fact that France gets the majority of their energy from nuclear power because they're the only country in Europe that is that way they depend on natural gas the least of any of the major European powers and they're already talking about potential energy crisis what does this say about Britain what does this say about Spain or Germany or Italy well Italy will probably be just fine there they're taking in a hell of a lot of natural gas on the down low. But what does this say about Germany? What does this say about, say, Romania or Poland? What does this say about them? What does this say about Sweden, Portugal, the Netherlands, Denmark? What does it say about them? They're not majority powered by nuclear energy. They, they go for natural gas. Will they be able to make it through the winter? Because right now the Europeans are using up their natural gas reserves. The, uh, the countries that are dependent on natural gas. And if they're using up the reserves now, there's not going to be much left for the winter. So what are they going to do? Like this crisis is looming in it. It gets bigger and bigger by the day. As countries continue to try to con go on with these sanctions on Russia. But they're backfiring on Europe. America could solve the problem by just letting the companies go back to producing oil. We can solve this issue in a matter of months. Europe can't. They need outside energy to fix the problem. They are in a bad way. And it doesn't look like they're solving the problem. They're con doubling down on the policies that are going to make it worse. What's going to happen to Europe when the winter comes? Because winter's coming. Winter's coming. We're in, we're in a, the midway point of the year right now, so it's kind of far off. It looks far off, but it's really not. Winter will come. And what will, ha what will happen to Europe when it does? I have a feeling... That if things don't change, it's going to be really, really bad for those Europeans. Really, really bad. But uh, we'll watch them. We'll see what they do. Like we usually do here on this podcast. But I fear for those Europeans. And I partially fear for myself. Since we could fix the problem here in the United States. But we have an administration that actively chooses not to. And even if... We have a 
a red tsunami in the midterms. That's in November when it's starting to get cold and they, those niggas won't be in office until January when we'll all be freezing. <laughs> and then it's probably going to take uh, at, at top speed. It's still going to take a couple weeks to start turning around the energy situation by letting the energy companies drill. By that point, the winter's damn near over. We will have been through the worst of it already. So, we will see. We definitely will see. But while we're... Well, we'll go back to Europe. We'll go to Eastern Europe. As Kiev has been hit with a missile barrage, which followed Russian troops occupying Severodonetsk, Severodonetsk, uh, which is a major provincial capital in the Donetsk Oblast, which is like a state in the U.S., like I imagine, like a state capital, like Springfield or Albany. The Russians have taken that equivalent of a state capital in the Donetsk Oblast the state. They've taken that, and it's kind of signifying the, the collapse of the Ukrainian front line in the Donbass. The Russians are now on the move. Russians are on the move, and the Ukrainians are being encircled in pocket after pocket after pocket. Eh, well, not quite encircled. It's not quite encircled. It's more cauldrons, what they call it, where they envelop you on three sides and then just hammer away and just absolutely violate the troops who are in the deepest part of the cauldron and until th their position just becomes unsustainable. And I talked a little bit about this where they hammer away at these troops, they have to pull out, and then they just get hammered as they're pulling out, but the Ukrainians can't leave that gap open in their line, they have to fill it with new troops, and then the new troops just get bombed into submission, and then they have to retreat. But the Russians are hitting them with so much artillery and missile fire that as they're retreating, the, the, the retreat is worse than, is all, I don't know if it's worse or just as bad, but it's definitely up there. It, it's arguably worse than standing your ground because when you stand your ground, you have cover. When you're retreating, you're going from positions of cover into the wide open to get to new cover. And then it, it, you have a long way to go before you're out of the range of these artillery pieces. The Russians control the skies. They can see you. They know where you are. And they're just going to bomb you. So the second you leave, what we're seeing is the second these troops who have who have to pull out because they, they're losing their men and they just can't be replaced. They have to. They can't be replaced one by one. They have to be replaced by entire companies of men. So they just rotate them out. But as the the troops who are leaving retreat, they're just coming under an even bigger barrage than they were before. They're, they're taking these incredible losses because they're, they're in the open. They're in the open. They don't have any cover. And so they just get obliterated. And it's, it's World War One, except the tank has already been invented and so has the self-propelled gun. And one side is industrialized and the other side is not quite industrialized. And so it's a slaughter. It is very much a slaughter. The Russians are not throwing themselves against the, the Ukrainian trenches. They're just... Uh, they're just destroying them from afar. And it's insane. And there was even a figure that came out from this British defense think tank. 
that they estimated, and they could just be overestimating the Russians to make them appear as a bigger threat than they actually are. But they produced some numbers saying that the Russians were producing and manufacturing more shells for artillery shells and missiles than the United in in months matter a matter of months they are producing more shells and missiles in months than the United States produces in a year and at the very least whether it's over exaggerated numbers or not to make Russia appear as a bigger threat at the very least those numbers are believable when you see what the Russians are doing on the front line in uh, eastern Ukraine well, they're not advancing, they're just sitting there uh, using artillery spam to destroy enemy units. That's what they're doing. And they've been doing this for months now. So, they're firing all these shells. Well, they have to replace them. So, it does, it's believable that they could be producing shells that quickly. But maybe they're not, and they're just, they have a slight surplus in production, as opposed to what they're using up. Rather than they're outproducing the United States by multiple times. Either way, we know that the Russians aren't running out of artillery shells and missiles anytime soon. They're, they're not acting like they are. So they're just going to continue doing what they're doing. But that's uh, just something to think about. And while we're talking about the war, a captured British volunteer in the Ukrainian army has been sentenced to death. And he, he got a... A story in the the Guardian, I believe. Uh, I don't know what he was expecting when he signed up for the Ukrainian army, but he got captured by the rebels, the Luhan, one of the Luhansk, uh, either the Luhansk People's Republic or the Donetsk People's Republic. I think it was the Donetsk People's Republic. He was captured and he was sentenced to death, and the the UK has asked for him to be released. Russia has basically ignored them, and they're going to allow the execution to go through. That's going to send a very painful message to future volunteers, although I, I'm not entirely sure how many more volunteers are going to come, as that wave of enthusiasm has already passed. The, the little August madness has already passed, so I don't think Ukraine's going get, to be getting any more fresh volunteers from Europe or America but the people they are getting are just going to die in the front lines with them and Russia in the midst of all this is set to reorganize their trade they're intending to trade more with the BRICS countries as opposed to the countries that are sanctioning them because they're, those countries are sanctioning them so the sanctions at yet another level are backfiring and hurting the people imposing the sanctions so, we'll see what comes of that. Uh, the Russian economy hasn't collapsed. So, I... I guess that's just an L. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. I guess that's just an L. That those of us who advocated for sanctions... <laughs> not me. <laughs> those of us who advocated for sanctions are just going to have to take that L. And the Russians are going to do their victory lap after victory lap because they didn't collapse. Uh, but, speaking of the BRICS, you have Jair Bolsonaro of Brazil, uh, who, during a meeting of the BRICS countries, said, quote, we must join efforts to reform international organizations like the World Bank, 
the IMF and UN bodies, including the Security Council, end quote. He said, quote, the growing weight of the emerging economies of the world requires a proper representation, end quote. So we have the current world order being actively undermined, actively undermined by the relative weakness of the United States right now. You know, pretty, we're, we're trying to look inward and outward at the same time, and it's just not working. Uh, they both, the issues outside and inside require our full attention if we're to deal with them properly. And I say we look inward instead of outward and leave everyone outward alone up to and including our allies. That's my position and always has been uh, for a couple years now. But um, due to the combination of the relative weakness of the dominant power of the current global order, which is the United States, and the rising power of challengers to the current global system, like Brazil, India, China, Russia, Iran, and even Turkey. The rise of these challengers presents a, a shift. A shift that usually happens towards the end of these sorts of orders. And world orders have historically been much more regional on scale, like the Greek world the Chinese world, well, they just call it China, but that was pretty big back then for ancient peoples, India, well, India, you had or the Arab world, their world, Europe, or the Mediterranean. The world has historically been much smaller on scale, but each world had its own order. And those orders came and went. We are witnessing our order going now after 75 years. It's now going. We're trying, unfortunately. Uh, no, that's my opinion, though. But we're trying to maintain it at the same time that these challengers, who of which there are many, are putting pressure on the system because they cannot resolve the things that they want resolved in the way they want to resolve them so long as they are within the current system. Russia wanted to resolve its border security and its, uh, its security concerns regarding NATO expansion, but they were unable to do that within the current world order, so they weren't against it. They invaded Georgia. They invaded Ukraine. And they threatened to invade Finland and Sweden too. Although Sweden they probably won't get to, but Finland is right there. So now you have conflict. China wants to assert control over its region. The United States won't let it. So now it builds artificial islands in the South China Sea. It's threatening Taiwan. Things that... Uh, issues that cannot be resolved in the way that China wants to resolve it within the current system. It therefore has to oppose the system and try to overthrow it. And it's not a matter of good or bad or right or wrong. It's just a matter of interests. For the past 75 years, it was in everyone's interest to go along with the system. But now we've gotten to a point where 
multiple countries, major countries, it is in their interest to go against the system. And we've also gotten to a point where the United States is not so much do more dominant than everyone else, because everyone else is shattered from World War II. The gap between us and everyone else has shrunk because everyone else has recovered from World War II. And we may or may not have shipped our manufacturing base overseas. Well, who said that? Um, so the gap has shrunk enough to where these challengers collectively are too much for us to handle by ourselves. Which is why every time we come up against one of them, particularly Russia and China, it's never just a calculus of United States versus Russia or United States versus China. It's U.S. and allies versus Russia. U.S. and allies versus China. Because we can't do it alone. We're at the end of a, a, a world order. And now you have calls from the challengers to reform the world order. It starts with reform. And when reform doesn't work because the dominant power, the United States, and other countries interested in maintaining the order don't want it to, like most in Europe or Australia or Canada, you're going to end up with a forced overturning of the world order. That usually comes with violence, but we will see. It usually comes with violence, but we will see what comes of this. But we will get into the meat of the episode. Uh, I'll just leave you with that thought, and we'll get into the meat of the episode in just a moment. Alright, kind of get into the meat of the episode. <clears throat> I chatted a whole lot earlier, so I guess that was uh, not so rapid fire. But hey, more content, more content, we'll, we'll just roll with it. But now we're going to talk about Mid-East NATO. Uh, and this comes after the King of Jordan, Abdullah II of Jordan, uh, he made some rather interesting comments and statements last week when speaking of what he described as the unusual level of cooperation between Middle Eastern states, particularly since Russia joined the war in Ukraine and started winning really, really badly and causing a famine in the process. Well, the famine hasn't hit just yet. But it's another disaster in the making. But back to Abdullah II. When talking about uh, what these comments that he made, he brought up the prospect of, get this, Middle East <laughs> NATO. <laughs> Middle East NATO. He said... He said, I quote, I would be one of the first people to endorse a Middle East NATO, end quote. He then went on to say that, uh, quote, the vision for a Middle East NATO must be very clear and its role should be very well defined. Otherwise, it confuses everybody, end quote. So, this is a very interesting set of statements and comments we have and aside from my natural disdain for america being in any such alliance including nato the original um we're, we're gonna talk about it because it's 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 out there now and it would be pretty significant geopolitically speaking 
if anything close to it ever did pop up or if any more countries started talking about forming something like this, especially if it ended up not even including the United States. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but the first thing I gathered from this was his statement came off as sort of a an open criticism of NATO as he was talking about potentially having their own version of NATO in the Middle East. It came off it came off as an open criticism of NATO as being particularly without a vision or clear purpose for existing, which is a fact. Uh, they, it doesn't have a vision, and it doesn't have a clear purpose for existing, which remains true even now. NATO, even when given a purpose on a golden platter, that being resisting Russia, sort of like its original purpose, which was to resist the Soviet Union, even now, there's no purpose, there's no vision, there's no, no real sense of urgency. Like, the, if you look at NATO, they'll talk about unity. They'll talk about, oh, we, we're more united than ever before. Russia's made a grave mistake. They united the West and made the West think seriously about their own defense. But when you look at their responses, like their actual responses for what they're going to do moving forward, aside from token aid and visits to Ukraine... When you look at what the countries of NATO are actually going to do for their own defense, you, you see that they still don't have a vision or a purpose. They have no clue on what to do beyond going along with whatever sanctions the United States imposes on Russia. And we've already maxed out those sanctions, so now everyone's doing their own thing. And we can see that one, that they're doing their own thing isn't doing anything to Russia, not really, except for Lithuania, who just cock-blocked Russia out of direct land route to Kaliningrad. So now Russia's resupplying via the Baltic Sea. Lithuania was able to do something, but was that for Lithuania's defense, or does, will that end up uh, unnecessarily endangering the country in the future? We'll have to see. But what is what are other countries doing? Germany's putting a hundred billion dollars into their military, but what are they going to do with it? Because a lot of equipment in well in the United States, I know that much, but a lot of these equipment in military goodness, a lot of these pieces of military equipment, modern military equipment in Western countries are very expensive, and probably because they're overpriced. So what exactly are they going to get for that $100 billion? They say that they're going to continue along with the increase in their budget at the 2% mark of their GDP moving forward. But will they actually live up to that? Because we've been hearing promises of the magical 2% GDP number out of these countries for the longest. And only now have we gotten even the slightest inclination that they're going to actually do that. But will they do it? Or will this just be a one-time thing where they pump in $100 billion into their military and then it just fades away? Because the war is over. What's Germany going to do? How, what's Germany's strategy for defending themselves if they come to blows with Russia? What are they going to do? They, 
We haven't heard anything about that. What's Poland going to do? We, we haven't heard anything about that. The, the, the Polish are very eager to make sure that the proxy war in Ukraine goes on for as long as they can make it go on. But that's not going to be for very long. So if that's their defense strategy, it's a very short-term one. What are they going to do if they have to defend themselves? They don't know. Finland and Sweden want to join NATO. What's Finland going to do if Russia invades? They don't know. Is France even going to show up to the fight? <laughs> we really don't know. Spain and Portugal, will anyone even remember that they were a part of NATO when the rubber hits the road? We don't know, and they probably don't want us to know. <laughs> we know what the United States is probably going to do. Something stupid. We're going to send our troops over there to go die. That's what we're going to do. And then whoever happens to be the president at the time is going to get kicked out of office, probably impeached, and we'll, we may or may not exit the war. We're not in a position to be fighting a total war right now. Will Britain come to the aid? Probably. But will they send meaningful numbers of men? Probably not. But hey, they have a navy. They can't send that Navy into the Baltic Sea, or the Black Sea for that matter. They'll be shot at like they did the last time. They, If you remember way back, about a, about a year ago actually, when the British sent that destroyer to the Crimean Peninsula, they almost got sunk by the, U, the, the Russian jets. I called it the Crimean Incident. Yeah, that'll, the sinking of the ship will actually happen. If they tried to do that, they're not going to send their navy into the Black Sea. They're not going to send their navy into the Baltic Sea. This is not the 19th century. This is not the 20th century. The early 20th century, anyway. It's very dangerous for navies right now. They're not going to send it over there to go die. They spent all this money building it up. What is NATO going to do? Is, is Turkey going to actually fight Russia? Or will they sit this one out? And make a deal with Russia. We have no clue what NATO is going to do. NATO has no clue what NATO is going to do. Nobody in NATO knows what their neighbor is going to do. We Do we know what the Canadians are going to do? Probably whatever the hell we do. But do we know what we're going to do here in the United States? I say I can assume that we're going to send troops over. But would we? Does... Biden have the support politically to do that? If they lose in the midterms, the Democrats, if the Democrats lose in the midterms, will the Republicans allow them to send troops overseas? Perhaps, you know, but only for Taiwan, I'd imagine, not for Russia, not for Ukraine. But what about NATO? If it's, if it's Russia invading NATO, will the Republicans go along with sending troops? We don't know. Like, a lot of the assumptions we have of modern geopolitics rests on America honoring these alliances. But when you look at the current state of America, is America in a position where we even would honor these alliances? Now, I would hope to know. I don't think we should have had these alliances in the first place. But if we're, we just so happen to be in a position where we just can't possibly honor them, well, don't mind me. I don't mind if I don't. But on a serious note, 
is the United States going to honor these alliances and these defense guarantees and these commitments? Because it, it's questionable. Now, I wouldn't say definitively that we won't, but it's questionable right now. Nobody in NATO knows what the rest of NATO is going to do if NATO actually ends up at war. Like in Europe. No one knows what they're going to do. NATO has no vision. It has no purpose. It should have been abolished, but it's still here. And now we're still, we're still even when a purpose has been given to us, we still don't know what we're going to do about it. Germany's going to spend $100 billion on the military. Well, what are they going to buy with it? Are they going to buy anti-tank weaponry? Are they going to, or are they going to buy more tanks? Are they going to buy aircraft? Or are they going to blow it all on a Navy? What are they going to do with it? Are they going to invest in high-speed rail so they can move their troops around faster? Like, what, what are they going to do? We don't know. We, we really we won't know until they actually buy the things, because they can tell us what they're going to do. And then there's what they actually do, which is probably going to be two different things. We have no clue. NATO is without vision. And this is what the first thing I gathered from, uh, just sort of... Uh, Tied right back to what I was talking about before I went on a rant about NATO. This is the first thing that I gathered from King Abdullah II's statements regarding a Middle East NATO. It has to be, it has to have a clear vision. It has to have a clear purpose for existing, which modern day NATO does not. NATO the original. And when we look at, say, strategy for dealing with Russia. What would the Middle East strategy be? Because NATO, the original, doesn't really have a strategy for dealing with Russia. We don't know what we're going to do if we end up at war with Russia. We don't know what our end game would be. Would it be to break up Russia? Would it be to just take more territory away from Russia? What, what, what would we do if we broke up Russia? What are we going to do with the individual states we create? How would we draw the borders? What would, what would we do if we end up making more conflict in the process? What, what do we do if we lose? What's, what's, our, what's our off ramp? What's our end game if the thing doesn't, if the war doesn't go our way? We have no clue. We have no strategy. We have no strategy. Even though Russia and Ukraine have been at war for four months now, there, there's nothing. It's plenty of time to come up with even a rudimentary plan of action, which you can build off of and adjust as the situation changes. We don't even have that. We really don't. But uh, uh, there's there's no plan, there's no strategy, there's no purpose. But the second thing that I took away from the statements King Abdullah made was that, and this was more more subtle than the first statement was. The, the first statement was a really overt criticism of NATO. But the second thing I took away was a lot more subtle. And it's that he doesn't want to join NATO, the original, uh, which is why he proposed the Middle East NATO in the first place. He said he would he would be the first advocate for a Middle East NATO. But he doesn't want the NATO alliance that we know of to expand into the Middle East to achieve Middle East NATO. So that's a very subtle, we don't want to be a part of NATO. And uh, that's to say nothing of the other countries in the Middle East, this is really, this is just the king of Jordan we're talking about here. Jordan's a pretty minor player in the Middle East. 
So in the, in the grand scheme of things, even his advocation for Middle East, NATO, is probably less significant than what I've decided to make it out to be. But it's there, you know. It's not like he's speaking into the void. Other people are listening. And maybe the idea resurfaces in response to a crisis. Who knows? Maybe the United States is the precisely the crisis that makes Middle East NATO. I mean, we seem to not want to leave their countries, even though we're militarily occupying them. So maybe they revolt against us and they need Middle East NATO to kick us out. That's a possibility. That's the unthinkable possibility. But it's there. So, and uh, but going back, going back, he doesn't want to be a part of NATO. He wants, if there is to be a NATO in the Middle East, it needs to be for, of, and by the Middle East. He would like a separate alliance centered on the countries of the Middle East and to have it made specifically to deal with Middle Eastern problems and issues. Problems most likely including civil wars, food security, clean drinking water, and of course terrorism. And maybe, just maybe, economic development. Maybe. Uh, I throw that in there, but you know, it's a mil it would be ultimately a military alliance, so maybe that wouldn't be appropriate to put in there. But these are the major issues affecting the Middle East, because uh, it's a very arid region, and it's hard to get food, hard to get drinking water, and there's lots of jihadists roaming around the region, blowing things up and shooting people, creates lots of instability, which hinders economic growth and development. So if there ever was an alliance and it really did live up to the things that King Abdullah wanted, which is to address the issues of the Middle East, not anywhere else, those would probably be on the list of things to address. But I'll digress. No, those are my takeaways from his comments on a potential Middle East NATO. I, I hope that if the, it goes through in any way, shape, or form, it does not include the United States. I'm sure they can handle their own business, those Middle Eastern folks over there, yeah. But knowing knowing my fellow Americans who are more prominent than me will probably end up in a part of it. Because we can't cede ground to Russia or China. We have to have a say in things we don't care about. Oh, it's painful. It's painful. But alas, something that I view as good happened to uh, put a smile on my face. I uh, no, don't know about you and where you stand, but last Friday something pretty major happened over here in the States. And that thing that happened was that Roe v. Wade has officially been overturned. Last week on Friday, the 1971 Supreme Court ruling Roe v. Wade was overturned and the court ruled that the 14th Amendment does not grant rights specifically mentioned in the Constitution, namely a woman's, quote, right to abortion and a right to privacy. Is the, the issue was that it was a, uh, it was a private matter meant to be between the woman and the doctor, and so that was one of the ways it was argued, and you can't abridge the rights of people. And there's a due process. So these are some of the things that were made to argue in favor of having abortion. And it ended up working when 
Roe v. Wade was ruled back in 1971. And it basically outlawed abortion throughout... Not outlawed abortion. It, <laughs> it essentially had the effect of legalizing abortion across the country. I went, in the, I went in the complete opposite direction there. It had the effect of legalizing abortion across the country and outlawing the outlawing of abortion. It rendered abortion bans essentially illegal and states had to stop enforcing them. States that had already banned abortion, which was quite a lot back then, that essentially had to put those laws on pause or repeal them in response to this court ruling. So, that was the effect of Roe v. Wade back when it uh, first came out. And again, it rested on the 14th Amendment. But with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, the courts ruled that the 14th Amendment was is not suited for essentially advocating for rights that are not stated in the Constitution. Because the 14th Amendment is meant to protect your rights. You're, you can't abridge the rights of citizens. But if those rights are not in the Constitution, well, then the 14th Amendment does not protect the rights you claim to have. So the right to abortion, and this is me very vastly oversimplifying this, the right to abortion, since abortion is no not stated anywhere in the Constitution, it is not a right recognized by the Constitution, so it is therefore not protected by the 14th Amendment. It's not a right, so the 14th Amendment can't be used as a essentially a way of guaranteeing it. And so that was the basis for the overturning of Roe v. Wade, the uh, sort of a, a picking apart of the argument that led to its its ruling in the first place, Roe v. Wade. The court's ruling, though, while not directly calling into question other rulings such as Lawrence v. Texas, Griswold v. Connecticut, or Overfell v. Hodges, uh, it, so in this order, you, the effect of these rulings, in the order that I name them, is you can't punish people for non-traditional sexual acts, uh, you can't restrict access to contraception, and same-sex couples have a fundamental right to marry. So, those rulings, the court, in overturning Roe v. Wade, on the basis that they overturned it, centered on the 14th Amendment, not guaranteeing rights that are not in the Constitution, and only guaranteeing rights that are in the Constitution, in picking apart Roe v. Wade in the way that they did, they left these rulings and a number of others sort of open. They didn't outright contradict them. Well, they didn't outright call them into question in that they were invalidated. But rather, they made it so that future, future rulings and Supreme Court cases could not rely on these previous cases for their precedents, because the precedents were determined in a manner that is now in question, which was the way in which the 14th Amendment was used to justify rights that weren't specifically stated in the Constitution. So in overturning Roe v. Wade, they have thrown a number of other court cases into question, but not quite uh, invalidating them. 
if that even makes sense. It's essentially as close as they could get legally to invalidating these previous rulings without straight up invalidating the previous rulings. So that's what the effect of overturning Roe v. Wade in the way that they overturned it. So that could open the door to a number of things. And it did find the overturning of the rulings. It found that those rulings that I mentioned, uh, again, they, they can be used on the grounds of the 14th Amendment, which means that they can't really be relied on for legal precedent. They can't be referred to when other court cases are being made. So this has sparked fears among many that those other rulings that I mentioned, like Lawrence v. Texas, Griswold v. Connecticut, Obervel v. Hodges, that those could be challenged in the courts and overturned as well if their rulings can't be used as legal precedent based on the grounds with which those rulings were made. Well, then that, again, comes as close as you can to invalidating those court cases as you can get without just straight up invalidating those court cases. So if those cases get challenged and they're already walking the tightrope of being invalidated, well, then they're probably just going to get invalidated officially the second a real challenge takes them to court. So there's fears that that's going to happen as well. And as a side note regarding the gay marriage thing, the um, Overvel B. Hodges, I, I, I said something like this would happen. Uh, this was back in 2019, and this was well before I even had the idea of starting a podcast. It was really just part of a conversation I was having with my friends at the time. Now, we were talking about all the woke garbage that was ruining a whole host of shows back then, and we were just going on rants together. But I said that, because at the time, we we got to the part of the wokeness that was emphasizing gay everything. Everything has to be gay now. Everybody's gay now. I said that the gay community needed to stop while they were ahead or else there would be a backlash that would sweep away everything they've achieved. Now, of course, you have no way of verifying that I actually said this, but <laughs> with the opinions coming out of the Supreme Court from this decision, particularly out of Justice Clarence Thomas, the door to what I said would happen is open. And I'm honestly not even sure how I feel about it. I mean, I'm not gay, but is it worth banning gays from marrying? The strictly Christian argument is, yes, marriage is for a man and a woman. It is a commitment to having children. Plus, marriage is an inherently religious procedure. The legal argument is, no, marriage brings benefits under the law, and everyone's supposed to be equal under the law. So, I, I mean, I digress, but it's just... Even though I said it, it would happen. Actually seeing that door open. In a real way. And seeing the path to which what I said would happen. Seeing the path to which it might actually happen. It it, it, just, it hits different. I'll say that much. It really does. But I'll digress. But now, with Roe v. Wade officially overturned. Because back then, we talked about the the draft ruling, not, but now we have the actual ruling. With Roe v. Wade officially overturned, 
the issue of abortion now becomes a state-by-state -state issue, which means that each state can pass their own laws pertaining to abortion. Thirteen states, right away, without, without missing a beat, uh, the states including Texas, Alabama, Missouri, and Arkansas, have already made it illegal, while states like California, New York, Hawaii, and Washington are likely to either keep abortion legal or maybe even expand its parameters to later stages of fetal development. But, now that's the actual effect of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Now, but the, the news that Roe v. Wade's overturning makes abortion a state-by-state -state issue and doesn't actually abolish abortion completely flew over the heads of many this past weekend as riots erupted in many cities across the U.S., although, ironically, they happened in jurisdictions and in states who were likely to keep the abortion legal. Uh, I almost said abortion ban, which is why I said the, but th these places where you're having these riots and this, this violence are in places that are more than likely going to keep abortion legal and won't touch it. If anything, they're going to expand it now that it's now that it's a politicized issue. Well, even more than it already was. But that, that's just a piece of irony I've gotten. And there have been calls made to ignore the Supreme Court's ruling. I mean, uh, from notably... Maxine Waters and AOC. Those are the two that come off the top of my head. Those are the two that are mentioned the most in the, my news sources. But, uh, uh, I mean, I, I don't know if they're actually going to follow through on this or if they're just talking. We'll have to wait and see. We know how politicians are. But the DOJ, interestingly enough, has stated that they strongly disagree with the ruling and that they're going to basically refuse to honor it. Which is also strange, because this is the DOJ, the Department of Justice. But, if you're the Department of Justice, uh, bear with me here, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say you're, if you're a lot, I'm gonna say if you're a lot, but if you're the Department of Justice, and you're not going to honor the law, and, well, justice, because the decision was reached by a, a due process, is justice if you're not going to if you're the department of justice and you're not going to honor the law or justice if you're not going to honor those things then what is the purpose of your institution if the doj won't honor the law and justice what is the purpose of the department of justice what is the purpose of this institution now, I personally say that I've just, uh, we add it to the abolition list of right up there with the FBI and the CIA and the NSA and the DHS uh, and the DMV. I'd be more than happy to abolish them all. And the Fed. Oh, I can't forget the Fed. And the Pentagon, too. You know, maybe the Joint Chiefs of Staff. <laughs> just, yeah, just, the, the abolition list gets longer. But really, if you're not going to honor the thing that you are the department of, what is the purpose of your institution? That's a legitimate question. And I guess we'll be dealing with that question for the next couple weeks or so, maybe till the election or whatnot. Everything's politicized since we're in a 
a, a midterm election year. But that's a real question. What's the purpose of this institution now? If they're just going to ignore the court ruling. Now, uh, I've, I've already made clear where I stand on the abortion issue when I talked about the draft decision a few months ago. But to those of you who might not have seen that, or maybe didn't get to that part and skipped over it, and, and uh, whatever, whatever, whatever may have happened, I'll forgive you for not listening to me. But <laughs> to give you a, a really brief summary of where I stand, I don't think abortion is consistent with our foundational values, which were enumerated and basically laid out to us by the Declaration of Independence, those values being life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You can't have liberty or the pursuit of happiness without life. Laws prohibiting smoking and drinking while pregnant have already established in our law that an unborn baby is a human life and that that life is protected under the law. So there's that. And that the my body, my choice argument is the right argument, but made at the wrong time. In that it should be made earlier, which is before having sex, and not after you're pregnant. That's my, that's a really quick rundown of my position. I have my full episode uh, you can listen to. But that's my position. And my position in light of the ruling has changed ever so slightly. It's evolved, really. In that I've come to see the solution to the issue. I found the solution. You ready? Alright, here we go. If you don't want the baby, just don't have sex. And like that, I've made a groundbreaking discovery. You'll find me on the, the nearest science magazine for my breakthrough scientific research for finally cracking the code on how to deal with unwanted pregnancies. Uh, you know, I'd just like to thank the Academy and my mom, you know, and my dad, my, my two sisters, and me, you know, because... You know, no one, no one believed in me more than they did. I just like to thank my grandma and my pops again. Uh, they all made me the man I am today. Never would have made it here without. <laughs> but <laughs> on a more serious note, I, I mean it. I mean it. If you want to sidestep this entire issue, if you're not ready to have a baby, just don't have sex. Uh, like, seriously, uh, in my listening to many people's response to the decision that the Supreme Court had when they overturned Roe v. Wade, I've, I've basically got a rehash of the arguments that were made uh, for years now. And the arguments are usually regarding rights, since I've had the time to sort of dissect and decompose them. The arguments that people make are about rights be it the right to choose or the right to life, pro-choice, pro-life. That's usually the context of the conversation in this right or that right. But the issue itself isn't actually born from a conflict of rights. It's born instead, the conflict of rights is secondary. It's after you got pregnant. That, there's the conflict of rights. Do you have the right to choose what you do with the baby in your body? Or does the baby have a right to life? The, the argument about rights is a byproduct of the actual issue. 
the issue is not born from the conflict of rights. It's born out of a lack of responsibility. People want to have sex without having to be responsible for the natural outcome of that. I mean, I, what is sex if not the act of reproduction? Sex is the act of reproduction and is thus, by its very nature, meant to get women pregnant. Even with contraception, there's always the risk that the woman ends up pregnant because that's what sex is meant to do. That's just the way it is. But therein lies the solution. I mean, if you have sex, you're choosing to have the baby. That, that's just what sex is designed to do. But therein lies the solution. Just don't have sex. If you're not ready to have a baby, just don't have sex. I mean, honestly, if every man who wasn't ready to be a dad didn't have sex, then how many men would even be talking about abortion? Similarly, and this is, I would say, even more powerful, if every woman who wasn't ready to be a mother didn't have sex, my God, we... We wouldn't even be having this conversation. There wouldn't even be abortions. There'd be no need. Every pregnancy would be intentional. There'd be no need for abortion. There'd be no perceived need for abortion. We wouldn't be having this moral argument over whether or not it was good or bad. Of which I stand on the side that abortion is bad, but we wouldn't even be having this conversation. We would bypass the issue entirely, and all it would take to get there would be just a handful of responsibility. That's the solution. And now, since the ruling is official, I shall say again, like I said in my previous episode, uh, back when this was just a draft ruling, I shall say again, that since more babies are now going to be born in the United States rather than aborted, the demographic recovery of the United States of America has officially begun. And boy, is it going to be beautiful. Ah. Yeah, like that man, I believe Bismarck once said, God favors three things. Children, drunks, and the United States of America. God bless this country. But alas, that is all I have for you today. Oh, I hope you like my super duper based take on the abortion issue you know i love being honest with you even when it makes you upset with me but at least you know i'm being honest with you but ah that's all i've got for you today we, we have some really big changes in uh the old us of a and i would say positive although some of you might say negative but you know well we can put the issue behind us now because it's a state issue so we can all uh we can all shut the hell up about it. <laughs> we can all shut the hell up about it and stop talking about it and leave it alone and maybe stop fighting each other over it. Although yeah. It feels good. But that's all I have to say for today. I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world and America is changing, folks, and we're gonna have fun watching it together. No, I've been your host, Hi Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics.
So till we meet again next Monday, servus.